Welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast, a podcast for Christians spooked by the growing hostility in the culture today. We will tackle a range of topics from current events, persecution, missions, and what it means to be the church. You will gain valuable insights from those experienced working with persecuted Christians around the world, insights we all need to chew on in these strange days. Together, may we help the church stand. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast. My name is Andy Coleman. I'm your host, and I'm excited for you to join us today. We're going to be covering a topic that many of you may not be aware of. You may have never even heard of this topic, but we're talking about insider Bible translations, and it affects you more than you might imagine. It affects the work of the church and what's going on, and I'm really excited to have two guests join us today that are well-positioned and well-informed on this topic, and they're going to help unpack this for us, help us to understand what's going on, why it matters, and what we can do as a church to make sure that what we're doing is healthy and healthy for the church body. So it's exciting to be supportive of church missions, uh, particularly Bible translations, getting the Word of God into uh, the language of the peoples around the world. Very exciting stuff. What we should note is that it's also very hard work. It can be very challenging, grinding work, and also quite technical. And that's the area where we're going to be exploring a bit today. We're going to cover a few different issues. But before we do, let's introduce our guests. Our first guest is Pierre Husny. He's the executive director of Horizons International. Pierre, welcome to the show. Would you start out by telling us a little about yourself? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, I guess, uh, all my life that I've been working among international students and, uh, and Muslims. Uh, I kind of was born into a ministry family. So for us, uh, we serve you know, in many different places in the world. Uh, I particularly was called about 12 years ago to serve uh, full-time in Beirut, Lebanon. I currently uh, lead a team of about 100 staff there, I guess several teams of 100 staff that, uh, you know, in total, that run a bunch of ministry centers uh, to basically just preach the gospel openly as we can to Muslims and uh, create Christian media and do uh, training in partnership with, uh, with indigenous churches. Good stuff. That is exciting stuff. I love it. Um, I'm glad you're with us today and hearing your perspective. Uh, we're also joined by Seth Vitrano Wilson, who is the Director of Biblical Translations at Horizons International. Seth is a passionate advocate of faithful Bible translations in all languages. He has served cross-culturally in the Middle East and Southeast Asia for over 10 years and holds an MA in Linguistics from Payap University in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Seth, welcome to the show as well. Would you break down a little bit more about your background and your work? Yes, hi, thank you, Andy. Yeah, so my background, I was not raised in a, in a Christian family, in a Bible-centered family. I was raised in a Mormon church, and uh, I left the Mormon church when I was in college and then came to Christ, uh, partly through the influence of Pierre and his family, uh, the Husnis, uh, as well as a study abroad program in Argentina. And so after that, I was really excited about missions. I think I al already was interested in the world and learning what was going around around the world. And then uh, lived in, in Lebanon for a period of time. And then now I live in Thailand. And we, my wife and I met in 2007. We joined Wycliffe and SIL, got involved in Bible translation uh, work at, at that time. 
You guys have fascinating backgrounds that we are looking forward to borrow from. Once again, thanks for joining us today. And let's just start out at the basics. Let's just start out by talking about insider Bible translations. Could you just share what they are just so that we can get our heads around it? Sure. So insider Bible translations are kind of an offshoot of something broader, which is called the insider movement. And the insider movement is the idea that uh, somebody from a, another religious tradition, for example, Islam, could actually stay inside Islam. They could remain an insider in Islam and then yet also start believing in Christ without leaving their religious tradition. So it's a very strange idea. And it's really, there are some historical reasons for why we've got here in the missions endeavor. But we, we believe that the degree that God needs to transform your life when you become a believer just means that you're going to have to leave behind the old wineskins. You're going to have to believe not only in Jesus as a, as a concept within your own tradition, but you actually have to leave and cleave to the body of Christ, and you have to join with the body of Christ. And that has to do with a theological transformation and a, a personality trans, uh, transformation sometimes and character and sanctification. And just the amount of transformation that needs to happen it just means that you're just going to have to leave behind your old uh, religious traditions. So that's a little bit about the insider movement. And then the insider translations, they come alongside that movement to support it. And so basically what they do is they take you know, the Bible and they try to translate it into a language, not only so that it's understood by the target audience, but also so that so that it feels like a religious text from their current religion. So an insider translation for the Muslim world would mean that they're using Muslim terminology. You know, often they're even using, you know, Muslim graphic design look, and they even use uh, Quranic verses uh, in the introduction, or they, they'll translate certain verses by just planting in Quranic uh, verses or, or terms in there. And so sometimes this is subtle, and sometimes it's gone as far as even removing the, the term son of God from uh, the Bible. So Seth can, uh, can tell you more about this. Yeah, so uh, there's a, a wide variety of, of approaches that people take, but there's the, the idea that if, as Pierre said, if you, if you make it more acceptable to them and more kind of the way they already think, then it'll be easier for them to embrace, you know, the truth of the gospel. The problem that we would see with that is that when you're changing so many things, you actually end up changing the truth of the gospel. Um, and with, whether it's son of God or including certain phrases that are, are very different meanings than what the Bible actually says. Got it. That's a good introduction for us. So when we're talking about these issues, can you discuss a little bit about contextualization and where contextualization might morph into over-contextualization. Sure. So contextualization basically just means that uh, you're taking the context into consideration when you're communicating a message. Uh, so you're kind of adjusting the message or communicating it in a way that according to the context of the person who's listening, that they're going to understand the message accurately. When contextualization actually goes too far into syncretism, it actually ceases to actually uh, be contextualization. You know, it goes beyond that into actually compromising on 
key points. So the, the trap that people fall in when they're, you know, very well-intentionedly going toward contextualization, you know, they really, they desire for people to meet Christ and to understand the Bible. But the, the, the trap that they fall in is that they go too far in accommodating what people want rather than just focusing on clarifying the message. So another way to put that is that, you know, we know from the Bible that the gospel is, a, is foolishness to Gentiles, and it's, uh, it's a stumbling block to Jews, right? So if we clarify the gospel to the max, it will still remain foolishness to the Gentiles, and it will still remain a stumbling block to the Jews. The temptation is to change the foolishness so that it sounds more wise to the Gentiles and lower the threshold of that stumbling block so that the Jews would not stumble over it. And that's where the errors happen. So it sounds like when you're talking about contextualization and healthy contextualization, those are efforts to make the message better understood. And when we might describe over-contextualization, we're actually changing the message itself. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Okay. So this is happening in a few different contexts around the world. You know, you're working in the Middle East, so this is happening in Islamic contexts. There's other places around the world where it's happening as well. And something recently came out, and it was called the Arlington Statement. I'm excited to, to learn about the Arlington Statement. Can you share a little bit about what it is? Yeah, sure. So the Arlington Statement on Bible Translation was put out last month. It was produced by a group of over 100 trans Bible translators, scholars, Greek and Hebrew experts, missionaries, theologians, pastors, a wide variety of people from really all over the world. Uh, there are native speakers of Arabic, Albanian, Turkish, Farsi, uh, English, you know, all over the place uh, who, who have been involved in this effort. And the purpose is to lay out a, a, a simple set of translation principles that are useful for maintaining faithfulness in these regards and making sure that we don't step over those lines that Pierre was talking about. Um, and so allowing the flexibility that, you know, recognizes, hey, languages are different. We need to not be too stuck on always translating literally when that actually has completely mis totally wrong meaning. But then we need to also create boundaries that make sure that we don't go into syncretism and things like this. Great. And, and syncretism, for our listeners who may not be familiar with it, that's really like a blending of religious ideas, of religions. So, well, that's exciting. I'm glad that the Arlington Statement is out there trying to add some structure and context to this topic of translation. I took a look at it, and it's not very long. Any of our listeners can go and find it at arlingtonstatement.org. I would encourage them to go and do that. And just to help our conversation, it's basically consists of three articles. Let's just go through them real quick. Article 1 says, Translators should not translate in a way that explicitly or implicitly affirms the theology of other religions at the expense of the meaning, context, and theological implications of the original language texts. Now, how has this been an issue in translation efforts, and can you provide any examples? Yeah, sure. Um, there are lots of different ways in which this might happen. Uh, the example that's given specifically in the statement is the inclusion of the Islamic profession of faith into Bible translations. So that in Arabic, it says, la ilaha illallah, 
which means there is no God but Allah, or there is no God but God. And so there are several Arabic Bible translations or Arabic dialects, you know, Bible translations where this is included uh, recently. And the idea is, well, this is the way that Muslims affirm monotheism. And if we say something like what the Bible actually says, for example, for who is God but the Lord, which is a tra- the Lord, that's, that's the name of God, Yahweh in Hebrew. Or if we say, you know, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, like what happens when Elijah, you know, the, the priests of Baal and God comes in the fire and they all, all the people of Israel say, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. Well, places like that will be translated in Arabic with this uh, shahada, which, which uh, there is no God but Allah. And they say that's the way that they would understand monotheism. And these are places that the Bible is affirming monotheism. So this is the, this is the clear and natural way for us to affirm monotheism in this language. The problem with that thinking, there's a few problems. But number one is that when a Muslim hears la ilaha illallah, they're not just hearing it as a phrase. They're hearing it as part of a whole context. Mm-hmm. For them, the next part of, of that statement is, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. And so when people hear that first half, they hear the second half. It would be like in, you know, if we were to hear the words, for God so loved the world... John three sixteen. Mm-hmm. Right. That's not that's not a Muslim phrase. That's not a Buddhist idea of God. This, that's a Christian phrase, and it means Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. Right. That's included in the meaning, even though those words aren't you know quoted. So when you quote La ilaha illallah in Arabic, you know there's no God but God. There's no God but Allah. You're including the prophethood of Muhammad. You're also including the Islamic concept of God, which is explicitly against the Trinity. They would say, no, God doesn't have, you know, a son. God doesn't have any kind of partner. It's just one single God. But, but it's not the biblical concept of God at all that you're actually affirming. Pierre, what's the motivation behind this? And a second question for you. I've heard you use the term contextual interference. Could you break that down as well? Yeah. So contextual interference is something that I don't know if anybody's ever said that uh, before I have, but it's kind of a term that I've coined. Yeah, as far as I know, you coined it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm not saying nobody's ever thought of this before, but at least uh, I don't think I heard anybody, anybody say that. Um, but contextual interference basically means that when you bring a word or a phrase or a sentence, like Seth is saying, out of a certain context out of a uh, kind of like a a common knowledge of a certain culture. And you put that phrase or word or sentence into another context. So meaning the Bible in this case, it's like the, the phrase or word or sentence brings with it baggage. It's got this meaning that comes with it. And it's sometimes it's a, an explicit meaning. Sometimes it's an implicit meaning. Sometimes it's just an atmosphere. Or it's a feeling. Sometimes images pop into your mind. So, for example, when I say just do it, you probably see a little Nike swoosh in the back of your mind somewhere because that's some of the contextual baggage that that comes with it. So, if I actually have an Adidas t-shirt and I put just do it on the Adidas t-shirt, there is some contextual interference there. Why? And how do you experience that is that when you look at that t-shirt that has a, you know, an Adidas logo and it has a, it says Adidas and then it says, just do it. You, you think, ha, huh, wait, is this Nike or is this Adidas? 
So it kind of looks almost like a counterfeit uh, <laughs> right. item of clothing because you know that there's something interfering. You know, there, there's these two different opposing meanings that are interfering. So when you take, uh, for example, the, in Arabic, the, the Muslim word for Jesus is Isa. Uh, we have a Christian word for Jesus that's Yesua. So Christians talk about the Messiah as Yesua. Muslims talk about him as Isa. And so in a way, there's different, there's different stories told about Isa. You know, he talks to his mother as an infant and tells her to shake the tree above her and fruit falls and things. So there's all these kind of like myths and legends about this character, Isa al-Masih, who technically it's the same referent. It's the same person we're talking about, but they have different beliefs about him and he has a different kind of personality. Yeah. And so um, when you take that word Isa and you put it in the Bible, there is contextual baggage that causes contextual interference in the Bible. So it's actually standing in the way of the Muslim actually understanding clearly the biblical context and the biblical meaning. So while there, you know, I think the intention behind it is that they want to make it easier, you know, because they're using familiar terms and right. they're using things that Muslims might feel positively about, although that's not always true. Muslims don't always feel positively about Islam. But I think that's some of the intention, but the, but the unintended result is that it actually causes more confusion in the mind of Muslims. And it also comes off as a very deceptive tactic. Uh, it would be a lot like, what if a Muslim group made a, a translation of the Quran and they called it the holy book and they put a cross on the front of it to, you know, because Christians would think that's a, you know, that's a Bible. But when they open it up and they see all this Christian terminology, but then they realize that it's a, it's a Quran, it's a Muslim book, they would feel like, oh, these tricky Muslims yeah. are trying to trick uh, uneducated Christians. Almost like a bait and switch. Exactly. Yep. Okay, well, that's helpful for us. Um, well, let's turn our attention to Article 2 of the Arlington Statement real quick. And it reads, Because every person in every culture needs to know God's truth in all of its fullness, Bible translations should not avoid confronting sin or falsehood that the original language text confronts, whether among believers or unbelievers. Uh, Seth, why does this need to be addressed? Yeah, so of course it's a natural human temptation when there's something that is creating offense or that is you know difficult or you know for people to to deal with. There's a temptation to want to soften it, or there's a temptation to want to just get rid of it. For example, you know the one example given in the statement is the story of the prodigal son. The father, when the son comes back, the father says, "Quick, kill the fatted calf. Let's." have a feast and celebrate well if you're translating that in a in a for a group that is mainly hindu the idea of killing the fatted calf could be very offensive sure right because they don't they don't eat beef they you know they're not uh, they consider that taboo and so you know if if people read that and they just they get so upset about that then they're not going to miss the point of jesus's parable which is the par you know point is the the father is merciful and, and all these things. And so that's what people will say. We'll say, this is a distraction. We're not taking it out because it's offensive. We're taking it out because it's a dis distraction from the main point. The problem with that way of thinking is to say, look, God put the, the details that he did for a reason. 
but secondly, you know, in, in this case, if you take out the any, any reference to killing the fatty calf, then a Hindu who comes to the Bible text could read the whole thing and, and could easily miss the reality of how God sees eating beef or, you know, animal sacrifice. If you look in the Old Testament, you have all kinds of examples of cattle being so sacrificed, right? Yeah. And so you can't divorce that from the, you know, the whole, you can't, if you take it from one place, you're going to have to take it from out from everywhere. And if you, you know, if you take it out of the New Testament, people might end up with the idea of, well, that was something that they did in the Old Testament, just like stoning, but we're not going to do it, you know, good Christians don't eat beef. And I mean, look, there's nothing wrong with not eating beef. You know, Jesus said, makes very clear that we are not to judge each other because of what we eat or what we don't eat. Right. But that, what that means is that there has to be a clear, you know, example. If, if God has given us a clear example that he is okay with people eating beef, we can't take that out and have people then start to argue that Jesus actually would have condemned eating beef. It's just not true. So when there's attempts to strip away something like this, a point like this, how does that typically get caught in the translation process? Yeah, um, it depends on the, so on the model done. Some, some translation projects are really just done with teams of native speakers, and they're just working themselves, and there's not really anybody checking them. And so it would have to just be in the local church, you know, community. Other translation projects will have someone called a translation consultant. And that person will be kind of, maybe they won't be a native speaker, but they will have seen lots of different translations. And it's their job to kind of check for things like this. And depending on the translation consultant, you could have somebody who could look at this and say, whoa, 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 what are you guys doing? You can't take that out. That's not faithful. God put that in. You got to leave it in there, even if it's offensive. But then there's other translation consultants that would think that was fine, though some translation consultants would even push back against the, you know, the translation team and say, well, you know, this is going to be misunderstood. It's going to be distracting. You need to take it out. So it really depends on the translation consultant. And that also then depends on the, on the translation philosophy and the training that the translation consultant has. So it really matters who is your translation consultant, what's, you know, or what is the philosophy behind the translation, what is being passed and promoted as good translation. You know, Andy, I was just going to say that uh, the, it's clear from what Seth is sharing that there is confusion about these topics. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, different opinions that, that can cloud things. And so when, you know, when people, you know, let's say it's, I'm a person in a, in a pew, in a church in, in the U.S., and I just, I just want to help. I just want to support Bible translation. And I don't, <laughs> I don't really feel qualified to get into all this detail and all this controversy and things like that. I think that all underlines the reason why the Arlington Statement is so important, yeah. is that we've got a whole plethora of traditional Bible translation, you know, or we could say biblically faithful Bible translation organizations that are laying out in very simple terms, you know, these three simple short articles saying that here's what we really agree on. And these are kind of the, the wide boundaries. And you just don't go past these uh, broad boundaries. And it just makes it so simple. And what I find amazing about this whole uh, Arlington statement is that how many revisions this statement went through. And mm -hmm. Seth was the one who, uh, you know, who coordinated kind of the, the revisions, kind of bringing all the, the feedback from all these different 
organizations and scholars and missionaries and people that are dealing with all kinds of different languages, brought them all together and really boiled it down to these three simple articles that everybody should be able to agree on. And that really just, to me, it, it really fulfills a huge need to simplify this issue and just to come together in a positive way, uh, unify around what we are going to all agree on for how to translate the Bible into these languages. Well, Pierre, I love that you pointed that out, and I do think a hat tip is in order to Seth for that work of just harnessing all of those perspectives for the Arlington Statement and the various versions that had to go through. Um, That must have been like herding cats. I, I can't imagine the challenge that went into that, but I'm grateful that that was done. And I love what you point out about these being three wide boundaries. What a tool this offers, the Arlington Statement offers to, you know, missions committees, to pastors, to church, to just Christians in the pews back home so that they can thoughtfully consider projects that they're supporting and ways that they're being a blessing to the kingdom. I do think that this has, this is a critical need um, that needs attention, that needs daylight, some transparency. And like Pierre said, We just needed to draw some clarity out of what had become a cloud of confusion. So grateful for those three wide boundaries put forth in the articles of the Arlington Statement. Let's turn our attention to the final article, Article 3, and it reads as such. The Holy Spirit has created an intricately woven tapestry of truth containing a number of key terms connected across multiple passages that all contribute to the meaning of the whole. Translators should strive for a high degree of consistency in translating these key terms in order to preserve this interwoven meaning in translation as much as possible. I think that that article is very well drafted. Um, I love that phrase, an intricately woven tapestry of truth. Well done, whoever authored that passage. You know, that's that's probably my favorite sentence in the whole thing. Yeah, it's so well done. Well done. Seth, could you give us some examples of why this article came into being? You, we've touched on it a little bit, but for example, what key terms have you seen mistranslated? Yeah, um, and this one's really important, I think. So the first example given in the statement is the translation of the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. So when if you look at how the New Testament uses this word Lord, first of all, it's used as a representation of the name of God when quoting Old Testament passages, so the name of God being Yahweh. Uh, Secondly, it's used as a title for Jesus, Lord Jesus, right? The Lord, people turn to the Lord. And what's amazing is that the New Testament puts both of these and connects them together. So it'll be passages like in 1 Peter 2, uh, where Jesus is called Lord, but it's a quote of the Yahweh, Old Testament, right? So the name of the one true God of Israel, there's no other God but this, but the Lord. There's the connection made that, oh, Jesus is that Lord, mm-hmm. right? And then in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul uses that to say, the, now the Lord is the Spirit. And so the Lord is the Father, the Lord is the Son, and the Lord is the Spirit. And so this beautiful Trinitarian word that connects Jesus with the God of the Old Testament. And so that's the function of of this word in the New Testament. It's beautiful. Unfortunately, uh, there are translators that 
maybe they, they didn't see what was going on there. Uh, and they were presenting uh, a, a biblical text to Muslims and they got confused because they said, well, in their minds, Lord, if you call somebody Lord, that means they're God. And then uh, they think, well, Jesus is being called God, but God the Father is you know, being called God. Uh, and they get confused. And they think, oh, there's two gods or three gods or whatever. Now, the problem with who, who isn't confused on some level by the Trinity, you know, anytime, any, any Christian, there's confusion potentially there. But, you know, the solution is not to then change the translation, but to work and explain and, and help people dig into what the, what the Bible teaches. But unfortunately, there'll be people that say, well, we're going to take that out. That's confusing. Instead, what we're going to do, whenever, whenever Kurios refers to God the Father, we're going to say Allah or God. And when it refers to Jesus, we're going to say Sayyid, which means master. So we're going to make a higher term for God the Father, but a lower term for Jesus. And the effect of that theologically is that then you're, you're not putting Jesus and the Father on the same level, which is what the original text actually does. And so it's, it's very dangerous theologically in terms of the divinity of Christ and the Trinity. You, you really weaken the biblical case for those beautiful truths. Pierre, would you add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, I would say that that example, and of course the others that have been given, they really show that this uh, statement, the Arlington statement, is not about some kind of tangents or little nuances that don't really matter that much or some kind of little you know, controversy among experts. The issues that are being laid out here really go to the core of salvation. And so when we are translating the Bible for the Great Commission to get the gospel out to all nations, the reason for this is we want them to have salvation. And without the Son of God, there is no salvation. Uh, if we start playing with these terms, and if and God the Father no longer is the Father, He's now our protector or our guardian, and the Son is now the Prince of God or you know something like that, you actually have dismantled the mechanism of salvation in the gospel. So to me, this just shows that this is so central to yeah. the Great Commission throughout the world and so central to the gospel. Yeah, these are not insignificant issues. They're not tertiary issues. It's essentially tinkering with the message, which risks distorting the message which risks distorting the gospel, and now we're in very, very dangerous waters. It does matter, and we need to be savvy to it. Pierre, if you have, let's say, a missions committee or a Christian or a pastor, and the church is supportive of translation efforts in their missions program, they've read the Arlington Statement, they're trying to be good stewards of their resources and to be supportive of of good, healthy efforts to strengthen and expand the body, how can they check and just to ensure that what they're supporting is healthy beyond the Arlington Statement? Yeah, I mean, I think the Arlington Statement is a good place to start because if your church or, you know, or missions committee or even you as an individual are supporting Bible translation organizations, I think it's worth talking to your contact at that organization and just saying, hey, have you heard of the Arlington Statement? What do you think about it? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, just having a discussion about that. I don't think it needs to be like a, you know, an inquisition or anything like that. But I think it's, 
it's a, it's a really useful tool to kind of, to clarify where people stand on these, on these issues. Yeah. And so I think if, you know, I think 90% of the time, if a translator can really sign on to this Arlington statement, their work is probably pretty, uh, pretty solid. Now we can't say that they, they might not have uh, character issues or problems or, you know, or, or have other problematic parts of, of their work. And, you know, we're all fallible people. But at least we can say that, that they are of the faithful portion of Bible translators that are committed to really protecting the meaning all the way from the ancient manuscripts to the ears of the people who haven't even heard the gospel. So I think it's really an easy and useful tool to just, hey, send the link over to this person that we've been supporting for several years and just ask, what, what do they think about it? Yeah. And I just want to say that there are a lot of really good people, a lot of good faithful people that are, you know, have given up a lot in this life uh, for the sake of the gospel and are translating the Bible that are making mistakes, that are making mistakes that they have been led to because they've been educated that way by their organizations. They've had training seminars and they've read articles that have all given this whole rationale that makes these mistakes look like they're actually faithful translation tactics. And yeah. so I, I don't think that we need to come in here judging people's hearts or judging people's intentions. But I think what we're really looking for is that the light of Christ would shine into this issue because there are problems. There are yeah. problems within the Bible uh, translation community, which is a, a, a key part of the body of Christ. Yeah. And so the Arlington Statement, it's really not a negative thing. It's a positive thing, trying to bring people together and, uh, and, and just bring light and clarity into these issues. Yeah. yeah. And I just want to add that there are, you know, if you go to the website and you click on signers, you will see the initial signing organizations and other you know, organizations and individuals who signed this statement. And so you have organizations like Bibles International, Horizons, Pierre and I are part of. Uh, you have Tyndale Bible Translators. You have All Nations Bible Translation. So you have Bible translation organizations that are committing to following these principles. And I just think I'm so grateful for all those organizations and the people that lead them and, and the great work that they're doing. And I, you know, I hope to see that list grow, but I just, you know, I think there's, if people are wondering, what can I do? I would encourage them to go you know, check out those organizations and see, you know, see if they, if they might want to support or if they want to uh, maybe join one of those organizations. Uh, and if there, there's other organizations that they, that want to get on board, that's wonderful. Also, you know, if you, if you have an individual translator that you're supporting and they, you know, are, are getting on board with the statement, then I think that's, that's great too. I, you know, I, I, like Pierre said, I really think there's a opportunity here for greater conversations and for just shining some, some, hopefully some gospel light on, on these issues so that, so that God is glorified. And so that yeah. everybody around the world can know Jesus, you know, Jesus is Lord. He's, you know, he's the son of God. And God is our father. He loves us so much and he's adopted us as his children. And we have, uh, you know, we can be free from the misconceptions that, that we came, you know, somebody like myself who grew up not in a, in a Christian Bible believing home. You know, I thank God that I just had a, a normal translation in English that I could read and come to the knowledge of the truth. Yeah. That's what everybody needs. I love it. Well, I love the way you guys 
uh, characterize that. And again, I, I think this is just a multifaceted tool, this Arlington statement, adding clarity and help where there, there has been challenges. And it might be a tool of, you know, redeeming some work. And it's just so healthy and so needed. And this just came out a month ago. I'm, I'm really grateful for that. As churches are working to cultivate the missionaries that they are sending out into the mission field, they want them to be as well-equipped as possible, ready to do work on the ground for the kingdom. Are there some resources that you would recommend to them, those that are looking to enter the missions field? Or maybe just like we're talking about for pastors or Christians in the pews, missions leaders, are there some resources out there that you have found helpful that you would recommend to them? Yeah, I would say there's a lot of, if you look on a a website called biblicalmissiology.org, there are a lot of good articles written on some of these topics. Uh, There's also a book, uh, it's a longer book that is very, very in-depth on on many topics called The Muslim Conversions to Christ. Uh, It's edited by Ayman Ibrahim and Ant Greenham. That has several of the Arlington Statement signers have contributed chapters to that book that was, came out a few years ago. So those are two good places I would start with, but there's, there's a lot more. Okay. Yeah, and I would say, uh, you know, we as an organization have uh, a part of our ministry, which is dedicated to training and equipping lay people all the way to missionaries in how to reach Muslims for Christ specifically. That's kind of our specialty within it. So the biblicalmissiology.org is a great resource for the translation and missiological concepts. A lot of it has to do with Islam or reaching Muslims, but also, you know, it can be very generally applied. Uh, But then if you go to engagingislam.org, that's where we've got our training programs that will help, you know, just regular church people all the way up to full-time missionaries to learn how to effectively share the gospel with Muslims and, uh, and disciple them. And you, you've mentioned a couple different projects that your ministry has been a part of, Horizons International. Would you just give us a little bit more of an overview of Horizons International, how it came into being, and the specific focus of that work? Sure. So Horizons International was founded by my father, George Husney, who still serves as our president. Uh, he founded it in 1990, and it was kind of a culmination of several different things that he'd done in ministry. So he he'd spent a decade and a half doing Bible translation in several different languages, including Arabic. So that shows we have a kind of deep roots in Bible translation. Yeah. He, before that, even he had done uh, church planting in Lebanon and several of the churches that we partner with uh, in Lebanon uh, as Horizons were, were actually planted uh, in part by my dad. And then he's also done international student ministry in um in the U.S. in the 1980s. So all of those kind of things came together uh, in 1990, and we just began growing throughout the world. Uh, We're in seven states reaching out to international students. Uh, We do training, like I said, for how to reach Muslims for Christ. Uh, And then we do field ministries around, around the world. And our biggest teams are in the Middle East and North Africa. Like I said before, it's about 100 of our staff are, are there and uh, just running evangelistic and discipleship centers where we proclaim the gospel. We've got a media studio where we dub gospel material into Arabic and Kurdish languages and even, you know, social media and things like that in Turkish and Farsi and different regional languages. We do uh, relief work for refugees. Anything that we can do to show the love of Christ 
while also preaching the gospel at the same time in a holistic model like Jesus did. So we don't separate it out into different compartments, but we do it all together, just like how Jesus was healing and, and feeding and preaching and all at the same time. We have uh, kind of a, a very diverse staff. A lot of them are Muslim converts themselves and from the region. And then also we have uh, an office in Hong Kong. That's where we send uh, Chinese missionaries to the Middle East and then also Americans. So it's kind of a very diverse group. And uh, mm. Seth is, uh, is in the mix there, uh, based out of Thailand and heading up the Bible translation. Well, it is a diverse work in a diverse group, but what a beautiful picture of the church, of the body of Christ. Really exciting stuff, and I hope that our listeners are picking up on that. That's ex- this is exciting stuff. I hope you go and check out Horizons International. I hope some of you go and prayerfully consider ways that you can be a blessing to Horizons International. Maybe it's through your own work and your energies. Maybe it's through financial support. Maybe it's just utilizing the resources that they are lovingly making available uh, so that you can be a blessing in your own local community, in your own local fellowship. Gear and Seth, if our listeners want to learn more about you, your personal ministry, or the work of Horizons International, uh, how can they go about doing that? For me, I'm, uh, I'm open to be emailed at pierre at horizonsinternational.org. If I can help you with anything, I'm happy to. Yeah, Seth at horizonsinternational.org. Just send an email. I'm happy to help with any, anything that I can help with. And, yeah, and I want to thank you so much, Andy, for just giving us the opportunity to discuss these real important issues uh, on your show. I'm glad. I'm grateful for the opportunity to have this conversation. I'm deeply convinced that more people need to hear about it and learn about it. For those listening, if you get the opportunity to share this with your pastors, uh, your missions committees, your Bible studies, whoever it may be, just so that we as a church are more aware and more tuned in uh, to ways that we can be a blessing to the church and also cautiously avoid things that might harm the church or harm people coming to Christ. Um, That's going to be a win for all of us. Um, Again, we've been talking with Pierre and Seth from Horizons International. You can learn more at, what's the website for Horizons International? Horizonsinternational.org. Too easy. Horizonsinternational.org. Well, Pierre, Seth, thank you for your time today. I think a lot of people are going to be blessed by this conversation, and we're grateful for all that you're doing. Thank you, Andy. Yeah, thanks so much. All right, take care, guys. Thank you for joining us today for the Christian Emergency Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends about us and ask them to subscribe as well. To learn more about the Christian Emergency Alliance or financially invest in our ministry, visit us at www.christianemergency.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you again for listening and stand strong out there.